Thank you for coming today. Let's pray real quick, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of our affection and our praise, Lord. I pray that our hearts would embrace that fact, that reality today as we look at Scripture, Father. But I also pray, Lord, that we would recognize that the gospel, your grace and and truth that has come to us, Father, is not for us to hold on to, and it's not for us to sit on, and it's not to terminate on us, Father. As we look at a passage in Colossians that shows what the gospel does in the world, that we would feel our hearts and our souls drawn up into your great work of reconciliation and redemption in every nation on this planet, Father. That your grace and your mercy would be so sweet to us, Father, that we would be compelled um, irresistibly to go out and to love our neighbors, to love those you've put in, in our sphere of influence, Father, and to love them in such a way that it's both word and deed, that we're not forgetting the necessity of communicating to them the greatest news in the world, that Christ Jesus has bore our sins and redeemed us from the curse, and we have freedom in him. I pray that that would not sit lightly on us today, Father, and that you would, you would really embrace us in the Holy Spirit as we look at Scripture. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, I would ask that you uh, turn them to Colossians 1. We've been uh, going through the beginning part of Colossians, and uh, last week we started something called The Harvest, our, 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 our series basically on looking at three verses that are in the beginning of Colossians. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we were looking at the gospel of Jesus Christ, this powerful word of the truth that came to the Colossians and changed their entire lives. And we talked about last week, what is the gospel? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news that has been brought into the face of very bad news, um, namely that mankind has committed treason and rebelled against the most wonderful thing in the universe, a very holy and beautiful God. And that requires justice, we talked about last week. And the gospel is this notion that through the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus embraced that justice and that wrath, and that allows us to be embraced by the Father and as a son or daughter. And so the gospel is really, if you want to make it really simple, it's the righteous for the unrighteous. It's, there's really only two pathways, like we talked about last week. There's eternal joy being with God, and then there's the alternate, which is being separate from God, which is defined in the Bible as eternal destruction. And um, so it makes the gospel effectively a very urgent message. So today we're going to be asking not only what is the gospel, like we've talked about, but what do we do with this knowledge of the gospel? In Colossians 1, 5, we'll start halfway there in that verse, explains this. So we're going to start with um, of this. He's talking about the hope laid up for us in heaven. So it says, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. It's come to the Colossian church as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, 
He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the part we're zeroing in on today is this section that says, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. What does that mean? Bearing fruit and increasing. Well, this is what the gospel does. According to Paul, it's been doing this across the entire known world. Now, this language, bearing fruit, is interesting because, um, <laughs> well, first off, it's one of the reasons why we called this series The Harvest, is that the nature of the gospel is a very much a nature of planting seeds and bearing fruit. But also, um, we just have to ask the question, why is Paul saying this to the Colossians? The Colossians Colossae was one of the major, seven major cities in this region, and Colossae is so large that the agrarian people, the people who would be there that would be familiar with farming lifestyle or agrarian lifestyles, those folks um, would be attending this church. And so the question we have to ask is, why is Paul using language like this for them? And and in order to find the answer to that question, we really have to go back to to Genesis 1.27, where that language is first used in our Bible. Genesis 1.27 says, I want you to listen to this passage too because it, it, the, the language that they use, the, word, the specific words that are used are so similar to Colossians. It's, it's almost, I mean, shocking. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's command to Adam and Eve, to mankind, is to be fruitful and multiply, and to fill the earth. This was their commission. And it came immediately after God forms them in his image, which is really interesting. God is making his image in the form of man and woman, and then he's displaying that to the world, to creation. This is, this is my image that I'm putting forth. And he tells his image bearers to be fruitful and to multiply, to spread his image to the ends of the earth so that every bit of creation can see how wonderful and how amazing he really is. His image is being placed out here. So that was mankind's mission at the very beginning, to display the image of God. But we have a lot of different ideas about what the image of God is. What did God give to us? Since he's an invisible God and he's spirit, what did he give to us that that is his image, that represents his image? I think the the most basic question we can ask, since scripture isn't really clear about what it is that we did receive from God, is what does an image do? What is the purpose of an image? An image is designed to image someone, to present someone, to display someone. For example, if you are a king and you govern an entire province and that province has cities um, scattered throughout and you want to make sure that those cities know who is the king of that city, what you do is you set up images across each city and those images point back to the one who is imaged. They are a reflection of the glory and the honor that is due to that person. So as image bearers, 
We were made to image God, not ourselves. We were made and designed to reflect his glory. And so God, from the very beginning, his purposes with man, um, the very first mission that he has is filling up the world with his own intrinsic beauty and worth by giving us his image to reflect um, and commanding us to fill up the world, fill up the earth. And if we were to fast forward to the end of human history, we would actually see that this does happen. This is the consummation of all things. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That's what God is moving human history toward. That event will one day be reality. The filling up of the entire earth with God's glory, with the knowledge and the understanding of how beautiful this God is because his image is covering it every inch. Um, And so from the very beginning, man is sent by God. Man is being sent out with the image of God to reach the unreached parts of this world. And something similar is happening in the Colossian church because we see this text that says, the gospel has come to you. The good news came to the Colossian people. It didn't spontaneously sort of rise up from their context. They weren't invited to another city and said, hey, listen, check this out. Try this out for a little bit. It's called the gospel. Let us know what you think. Um, Paul says the gospel came to them. Someone was sent from some other place. We know it's Epaphras, probably from uh, from the city of Ephesus. But someone was sent from another place. They arrived in Colossae, and when they did, the Colossian people encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel came to them. And so this method, this idea behind the gospel moving, being a sent message, is not a novelty. This isn't a new innovation that Paul's creating here. This is throughout the Bible. In fact, the very basis and motivation behind the gospel moving forward is the design that inherently the gospel is a sent message. We read from Luke 10, for example, last week we looked at Luke 10, and um, just to place it in context, Jesus is sending out the 72 followers that he has. He had 12 disciples that were really close to him, then he had 72 that followed him, (laughs) and he's going to send them out two by two to the surrounding sort of Jewish territories. They are bringing the gospel of the kingdom. That's what they're bringing, and this is what he says. He says, And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then he says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs and in the midst of wolves. And so we're told at the beginning here, we should pray. I mean, these 72, we're told we should be praying to the Lord of the harvest, that he would add laborers to the harvest, but also that we should go. And as lambs too, which is a really interesting concept because he's basically saying, listen, I want you as lambs to leave the stability and the safety that is inside the farm, the stable and the gates. And I want you to go out into the midst of wolves. 
So just a side note, that is not a very reassuring or comforting thing for Jesus to say. Because wolves eat lambs for breakfast. But this is what he's saying. And so we should not wonder why. We shouldn't be questioning or, or confused by the fact that in this world, uh, even today, but especially in the first century, there was widespread persecution against Christianity. From the very moment that Jesus sent people out, he said, this is a lambs-wolf situation that you're entering into, just letting you know. Um, do the math. He, Jesus is not a false optimist. He's not blowing smoke. He's going to tell them like it is. But the thing about it is he doesn't leave them hanging because in verse 16 he says this, the one who hears you when you speak the gospel, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. <laughs> and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So the one who rejects the lambs is the one who rejects the shepherd. That's what he's saying here. The one who rejects the lamb is the one who rejects the shepherd. And the shepherd here is God the Son. That's the last person in the universe you should want to reject. And the reason he's, the reason we're told this and the reason he told these people, I believe, is that it is critical. It is so critical for the one who is sent to know, to know for certainty that you are carrying the very message of the sender and that everything that you incur as being a sent one, every single thing that you incur as being a sent one is being incurred by him, the sender. Christ has, in designing the gospel and its proclamation, set his seal upon those who speak and proclaim the gospel. They speak for him. That's profound. When you communicate the gospel to a friend or to a coworker, you are speaking for the risen Christ for whom everything exists. This continues too in Luke 24. <laughs> Jesus continues this narrative of being sent. Luke 24 to 46, after his resurrection, he meets up with his followers, his disciples, and he says this, thus it is written, He's unpacking what happened over the past few days, him dying and resurrecting, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's saying, you know the, the cross and the resurrection? the same cross and resurrection that was foretold in the Old Testament, what was that pointing to? What was that culminating in? What was that focused on? Why was that happening in human history? He says that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of Jesus to every single nation on this planet. And these handful of men were, he gives them the name, witnesses. Jesus says to them, you are witnesses of these things. And th those things, he's talking about the gospel. Jesus sent them, and you see this in Acts 8 too, that this wasn't isolated to these 12 people that were with him or these 11 people that were with him or even just his, the band of folks that were around him. This wasn't isolated to them. This wasn't an, an apostle sort of mission. Um, we see that in Acts 8, 
everyone who believes after persecution breaks out over Jerusalem goes out and they are communicating the gospel wherever they go. They are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then it plunges headlong out into the entirety of the world to the ends of the earth, not just apostles. And so the direction and the inertia of the gospel, the whole focus of the gospel, is not that it is a message that you invite a group of people to, although you can, just as a paren, I think we've gotten into the habit of inviting unbelievers to church, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. And don't hear me say that it's a bad thing. But um, the nature of the gospel is such that we go out and we are in the context. I'm being called to the principal's office. The nature of the gospel is that we go out and we are in the context, in the world of the people who need to be reached. Not that we're inviting them to become like us, but we are entering their world and displaying for them face-to-face what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so um, (laughs) the gospel really is hope that is being smuggled into a hopeless situation. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans 10. He's telling the Romans church how the gospel operates by communicating the necessities that happen when someone believes in Jesus Christ. What is the chain reaction that caused somebody to trust in Jesus? He says this, How then will they call on him, on Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The feet. The feet. Why are the feet beautiful here? The feet are beautiful here because the feet are what takes the person proclaiming the good news from the place of receiving it to the people that need it out there. The feet are what carry them. They're what is needed for that gospel to come to people who need to hear it. They're not waiting for those people to come to them. They're not inviting them into a situation where they can, you know, sort of lay siege to their defenses and take them out and and cause them to trust in Jesus in some sort of trap or whatever. They are going into their context and they are communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ there. And they know, they know, Paul knows in Romans when he's communicating this because of what happens in Romans 8, he knows that this is going to come at a cost. It's going to come at a cost to them. It's going to come at a cost. There will be casualties, but it doesn't matter because the gospel has to go. Um, And if it does anything, it has to go. The the good news can't stay put. In fact, the very reason why we call it the good news is because it must be new in a context that it's received in. It must come into that context and, and change it. The very nature of the gospel is for it to merge into or verge into an ungospel territory. Now, this is where it gets real for us. Where do we fit into the equation? How do we factor into this uh, gospel narrative? In Romans, uh, Romans 2, Paul says he is obligated, obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, to learned people and to unlearned people, to Jews and Gentiles. He is obligation. He has an obligation to preach the gospel to everyone. 
So as a Christian, Paul is not thinking, you know what, gospel proclamation is just an additive sort of side dish on what I do as a Christian. It is very much what it means in Paul's mind to be a Christian. For example, in Acts 20, he says to the Ephesian elders, I am innocent of the blood of all. Why? Why are you innocent, Paul? For I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Think about the implications for that. Paul was innocent of the blood of all people. And the reason he was innocent of the blood of all these people that he's talking to, the Ephesian elders in Miletus, is that he preached the whole counsel of God. God, he communicated the entirety of the gospel to them. He didn't leave anything out. He wasn't scared or ashamed, which he says in Romans uh, 1.16, to leave out anything. He wants to communicate to them the entirety of the gospel. And the question we should ask is, if he did not do that, would he be innocent of the blood of all these men? If he didn't proclaim to them the gospel, would he still be innocent? And rationally, logically, we can say no, he wouldn't be. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. It wouldn't have made any sense for him to bring it up. Um, And so the presentation that we're seeing here actually echoes something that happened earlier with the Old Testament prophets, where God would give them a message and say, hey, listen, the people are depending on you, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they are depending on you. If you do not communicate this to them, their blood is on you. Their blood is on you. That's heavy. That's heavy. He's saying they are counting on you. Their lives depend on it, on this message getting to them and them understanding it and being able to wrestle with it. Now, first objection I would ask, and you should ask, is, is uh, Jeremy, this is Paul. These are the prophets. They are commissioned directly by God to do this mission. Surely, they are not, this, we, we are not obligated to the same level of responsibility. It's not ours. <laughs> we can't be held to the same level of scrutiny because um, we're not called to be evangelists. Evangelist is a role in the New Testament. We're not called, all of us, to be evangelists. That would be a really reasonable sort of objection. And I would agree, we are not called, all of us, to be evangelists, but we are all called to evangelize. Um, that's what it means to be at the, the base level, a receiver of the good news, is that it's so good, it's so good that I need to communicate it to other people. Ephesians 4.12, for example, says that this worship service, like corporate worship service that we have here, is on Sundays, is designed, it is explicitly designed to equip all of us for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's not just in adding disciples, that's in um, educating and edifying disciples that we have in our lives, but it means that we are looking to build and augment the body of Christ. And so um, the work of the ministry is very much a bearing fruit in increasing Colossians 1-5 scenario. Um, And Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 actually explicitly calls out what this work of ministry is. Listen to the words he uses here. Colossians 2.5, it says, All this is from God, who, is, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The entire world was being reconciled. 
<laughs> not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And the appeal is this. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Part of being reconciled to God is the receiving of this ministry of reconciliation. A better way to put this might be, if the gospel terminates on us, is it really good news? If it hits us and we are surveying a world that needs this message desperately, is it really that good of news that it just stops with us? How can it be if um, you're the only person who would need it? So Paul's last line here is really powerful. He says, we implore you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, what would cause Paul to use that language to say, we implore you? Was it a specific command on his life? Well, he says it right here that the reason I'm going to implore you right now actually is rooted in the fact that Christ Jesus was made to be my sin so that I would be his righteousness. He points back to the, the fountainhead of his desire for this ministry of reconciliation is rooted in and based in his own redemption. That's what his ministry came from. All that is needed to implore somebody to be on, uh, to, on behalf of Christ is to be redeemed and reconciled by Christ. So this is where we get a little bit practical. Why is it so hard for us, and I'm just going to be transparent, so for me, why is it so hard for us to share the good news with people? If we've tasted the good news as it is, why is it so challenging and difficult for us to tell people about Jesus Christ? <laughs> um, my contention is this, and we obviously know the, the objections to it. We know that the, we're, by telling somebody this, we're embracing a lot of possibilities here. Rejection, um, opposition, difficulty, embarrassment, shame. My contention, though, for myself and for most people is that we don't share the good news because we really haven't, we really haven't at a fundamental level grasped how good the news really is. If we knew how good and how urgent it was that this message was, I don't think the opposition would be there. And so what I want to spend is the next few moments contemplating that. Um, If we really knew, if we really knew how good this news was, we would share it. Nothing would stop us from sharing it. The gospel isn't just a message we bring to unbelievers. The gospel is the basis. It is the fountainhead for our disposition, our inclination, and our boldness in bringing the good news to people, even at great cost to ourselves. So think about it for a second here. The gospel, in the gospel, (laughs) we actually see a picture of the gospel moving out to people. We see Jesus being sent by his Father. Jesus Christ being sent by his Father. Jesus is pursuing people that, like us, that we would be saved and we would be redeemed. He enters our context. He doesn't invite us up to heaven. 
He enters our context. Therefore, his act of pursuit should be the cornerstone, if we think about it and saturate our minds in it, of our own pursuit. He's sent by the Father to bring the good news and to achieve and to accomplish that good news in history. Listen to how Paul describes this in Philippians 2, probably one of the most incredible texts on the incarnation, Jesus being God the Son and becoming man. Paul says to the Philippian church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So stop for a second here. We spent an entire Sunday on what it means to be in Christ Jesus. I want to just point to this here. This is actually not in my notes. I wanted to point to this just for a second. This mind is yours already. If you are grafted in Christ Jesus, this is your thinking, even if you don't realize it yet. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality God with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> he emptied himself. What does that mean? Think about what had to happen for that line to be written about Jesus. The eternal God immutable, impassive, powerful beyond measure, full of glory, for him to be clothed in the likeness of sinful flesh. For the incarnation to occur, it required the living God to empty himself. He incurred, even at the start of his mission to humanity, great loss, massive loss. That was the only way he could be sent from the Father. And then he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of obediently dying, even on a cross. That's the gospel. This, this passage in Philippians is the gospel. It is Christ Jesus coming in, at great loss to himself, giving himself up completely for you and I for our, to pay for our rebellion against him to begin with. He trades places with us, substitutes himself for us to bear all of the judgment of God. And as that judgment on that tree is raining down on him, on that human form that he had to take, until there wasn't anything left of his body, it was marred beyond recognition, and then he was shoved into a tomb, he accomplished what was needed for us to be sent. My, my point is this, Jesus, in displaying this, is not ignorant to the pain that comes from the call of being obedient and being sent by God. He's not confused about scorn. He's not ambivalent to receiving hatred. These are not things that he's unfamiliar with. He has experienced all of it, literally the worst of it. He experienced the reproach. He bore the reproach of us all. And it says in Hebrews, that despising the shame, this is shame due to us, despising the shame, em embracing the shame on the tree, despising it, he looked to his father. He looked through the shame. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Your coffee's ready. Um, 
He looked through the shame um, to the joy of being with his father and all of the people that he would redeem. And so to close, I want to I bring us back to the beginning, um, not just of this message, but really the beginning of, of human history. And I want to ask the question, how does, where's the connection? How does the sharing the gospel, which is what happened with the Colossian church, how does that relate to bearing God's image, which is what Adam and Eve were told to do when they multiplied and filled the earth with, with his image? How do they relate? Now, remember how we talked about the language being very similar, bearing fruit, multiplying, two opposite ends of the Bible, yet the language is very similar. So it's clear Paul had something in mind that he was trying to communicate. What's the connection? How does the gospel accomplish this? God told Adam and Eve to spread his image, his beauty and his joy and his splendor to every corner of the world. God wants the entire cosmos filled with the knowledge of his glory. He wants everyone to know this. When you believe, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, and we'll be talking more deeply about this in the coming week, when you have faith in Christ Jesus and really believe in it, it's authentic faith, trusting in him, not only do you receive the righteousness of Christ, not only are you forgiven for the sin that you committed and the sins that you're going to commit, but something else happens inside of you. Something amazing happens inside of you. God begins by the power of the Holy Spirit undoing all of the sin that is in you. He's undoing it. All of your unbelief is slowly, from the point that he collides with your soul and redeems you, is slowly being purged and you are being conformed into the image of Christ Jesus, into the image of Christ, who is God. That's profound. He is rescuing his image from our sin. <laughs> so what follows is this. This is what follows. As the world is filled with believers, as the world is filled with people who are bearing the image of God through the redemption that came through the cross, the good news is saturating the planet. The image of God is being spread to every single inch of this world. Nothing is left uncovered. That's how God accomplishes his mission to Adam and Eve through the cross. You, risen hope, are ambassadors of Christ. You are actually God's plan A. This was what he intended from the very beginning. That in his redemption of this world after the fall, we would be his image bearers. We would bring his image to the ends of the earth. We would be a sent kind of people. And we ultimately exist for the glory of God. We're going to take communion here in a moment as we worship. Um, if you're a believer, I want you to contemplate these elements. Think about these elements because communion points us to the cross. And it should always, every week, remind us of the ransom that was paid for us. That Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us wasn't just shed for our own redemption, our own reconciliation. His blood was shed for the rescue and redemption of people that he has right now brought near to you in your life. In your sphere of influence, there are people that God wants to display his beauty to. 
and they are mere words away from hearing it. And I, I mean, you may be even thinking about them right now. Um, folks that God wants you to engage, you felt his desire for them to hear the gospel. And what I would ask is that as you take these elements, that you pray for boldness, that you pray for a kind of love that wells up in you, that is so powerful, so overwhelming, that you will even risk great cost to yourself by bringing up Jesus to these people. Um, and if, as, your worship, as we worship here in a few minutes, um, if you have prayer for anything that you need, I'm going to be back there. There'll be some leaders back there. Um, feel free to, to, to grab one of us and pray uh, with you. Um, I want you to know this, that there will not be... Um, well, let me, let me start here. Um, just a word of encouragement about this passage. Um, last week, we saw that this promise, I closed with this promise that Jesus made in the Great Commission. He said in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you always. This promise is designed to address people who are taking the gospel and bringing it to other people. He is assuring us that I'm going to be with you no matter where you go. Everyone who believes Jesus Christ has promised us, he will be with us to the very end. Now think about that. We've talked a lot about a lot of heavy realities today. The gospel is serious business, and the world is in desperate need of it, and it puts us in a lot of danger, to be perfectly honest. And I'm not talking about physical danger. I'm talking about work situations. I'm talking about friendships collapsing. It puts us in harm's way. But here's the, here's the deal. In other countries, it's physical danger for sure. There will not be a second, not a moment of your life where you will be abandoned by Jesus Christ. I want to just tell you that right now. He will always be with you. Every single second, especially when you are communicating the gospel to someone who needs to hear it. Especially, he will be with you to the end. How do I know this? Apart from the promise that we should believe and embrace that is in Matthew 28, Paul, at the end of his own life, <clears throat> facing execution, I mean certain death, he knew it was happening. You can tell by the language in this letter. Probably one of the most important texts for me personally, 2 Timothy, the end of 2 Timothy. So he's writing as an imprisoned missionary. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's become a pastor of the Ephesian church, and he knows he's going to die. He knows that he's going to die. And this is his son, not his biological son, his son in the Christian faith. And this is Timothy, too, who's co-authoring this book of, of Colossians. These are some of Paul's last words and the last known recorded words that we have of him. I want you to listen to what he has to say and be encouraged by it. At my first defense... No one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory 
forever and ever. Amen. I want you to believe this. I desperately want you to believe this. When Jesus promises you something, he means that he never, ever, ever fails to deliver. <laughs> he will be with you. He will never leave you, especially when you're speaking the gospel. Even when you receive hate, even when you receive shame, even when you receive dishonor from somebody, as you communicate Christ to them, <laughs> Jesus is in that moment with you. He is with you. His hand is on your shoulder. He is looking into your eyes and he is smiling at you and he is saying, don't stop. Keep speaking. I'm here. Keep speaking. Keep proclaiming. Keep telling them about me. I will never, ever leave you. I promise that. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will always, always be with you. And when it comes time for you to go home, I will bring you there. This is what this text is saying with my own two hands. That, my friends, is the one who died for us. That is Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, the call of the Christian is that we would be sent. That we wouldn't just embrace the grace and peace that are ours in Christ Jesus, Father, but that we would be a sent people. That our spheres of influence would not just be for social interaction, would not just be for community, but Father, our social, our sphere of influence is given to us, whether at work, whether at school, whether at home, whether in the, the grocery store, wherever we might be, so that the name of Christ Jesus would be exalted. And the way that that is achieved is by people hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the gospel, Father, that's the apex, that's the zenith, that's the high point of your glory. When you sent your son to bear our sin, our reproach underneath your judgment so that we would be free, so that the guilty would be pardoned, so that the unrighteous would be made righteous, Father. Father, let that message, the heaviness of it and the beauty of it so enrapture our lives, Father, that the people around us who need to hear it, that we would feel a love for them that would overwhelm our fear, that would overwhelm our contentedness with inaction, that would overwhelm our disposition to just coast, but would instead fuel our passion to see them know the beauty we know to see them embrace the glory of our Father that he gave his Son for us to redeem us. I pray this, Father, asking for you to move powerfully in our worship service and communion um, and that your name would be glorified. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.